Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is A Lot To Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. Without further ado, here's Austin. Welcome, 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 welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I have no idea what time it is because this is a podcast and people listen to podcasts whenever they may listen to podcasts. Tonight is going to be a little bit different. Why do I say tonight? I just said I don't know what time it is. Today is going to be a little bit different because this is sort of maybe some deep stuff. I don't know. But we have uh, Mackenzie, Dr. Mackenzie Webster. Mackenzie Lambine. Mackenzie Lambine. I am sorry. I was given the wrong last name. I must have been given someone else's last name. Well, that's my husband's last name. Aha. You have your own and you're your own woman. Apparently, yeah. Yes. Well, I think legally I'm Mrs. Webster, but professionally I keep my... Well, this is Dr. Mackenzie Lambine, who is a forensic psychologist who has also earned a PhD in gang rape. And today yes. we're going to talk about the psychological ecosystem of criminality, I guess. How else could we probably put it, right? I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess first, the beginning. What gravitated you towards this, uh, this discipline? Um, so I got a BA, a four-year degree, whatever, in psychology, and so I was aware that to get a really good job and do psychology, you have to you have to get graduate degrees. So I noticed that I was getting kind of bored in my normal psychology classes as an undergrad, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll up the ante and I'll I'll do uh, criminal stuff. Why not? So I found a forensic program in Rhode Island, and I did a master's in forensic psychology. And then during the course of my master's. Um, my supervisor, I had to write a, a research thesis anyway, and he happened to work at um, a sex offender prison. And so he asked me, would you be willing to, to do your thesis on, on rape and pedophilia? And I said, okay, sure. So I did that. Um, I ended up analyzing over 200 intake reports of different types of sex offenders and doing some research. Uh, I ended up writing a paper and then I decided to keep going with that because uh, it was pretty interesting. You know, sex is, is interesting. That's why we're surrounded by it so much. Um, not necessarily negative sex, but, right. you know. Sex itself. Yeah. So sex is a really interesting phenomenon to me. So I decided to um, pursue that. It was kind of serendipitous, though, because I happened to be in Vancouver presenting my research, and I ended up speaking with a woman who was English uh, from London, from a university in London, and she asked me if I was interested in doing a PhD there in gang rape. And I said, okay, 
you know, I, I didn't really, when I was five years old, I, I wasn't like, you know what I really want to be when I grow up? <laughs> this is what I really want to do. Um, I just kind of happened to take opportunities as they were presented to me. And it just so happened the opportunities were pretty interesting and weird. Um, and, you know, my dad used to say, like, I used to ask him, you know, what, what do you say when people ask what your daughter does? And he's just like, well, you know, who wants who wants to say, oh, my kid hangs out with rapists all day? Like, what father wants to say that? And I was like, well, okay, that's fine. I mean, you're Tell not... Tell him I'm a psychologist. Yeah. Al- also, also, you're not actually hanging out with them. <laughs> well, he lives in Virginia, and he's 72. So, Got it. So, Got you it. Know. Um, well, there's something I'm curious about, which is uh, from, from the very beginning, the word forensic... You know, forensic to the layperson means, you know, dusting for fingerprints and dead and dead bodies and using the uh, UV lights and then like mm-hmm. drawing strings to bullet holes and investigations. In the psychological uh, nomenclature, what exactly does forensic mean? Well, I'm really glad I don't have to do the dead body swabbing and whatnot. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I don't have to do that. Um, so forensic psychology is where the, where psychology and the law meet. Um, so, so when someone commits a crime, it's now appropriate to try and find out why they did that instead of just being like, he stole my horse, let's hang him, you know? Right. Um, it's, it's become important to determine, oh, does this person even know what they're being charged with? Um, why did they do it? What are the mitigating circumstances? Um, they hire forensic psychologists to do all kinds of things. Um, but recently there's been a big push for people actually doing treatment. Um, cause the thing is, um, people can do crimes that are appalling and terrible and, and the public just, yeah, maybe wants to, to just kill them or whatever, but the legal system has determined that that's not appropriate. Um, and not moral. So they're like, okay, go to prison for 20 years, 10 years, whatever it is. Um, But a lot of people don't think about, okay, well, these people are going to get out, and they're going to go down to the grocery store with you, who may have your children with you, or whatever. And it's really important to have something in place to help them do that. Right. Um, And so... A lot of forensic psychology, or a lot of a lot of my experience with forensic psychology has been in the treatment realm. So these people did a really bad thing. Let's determine why they did the bad thing, and let's work with them so they don't do the bad thing again. And also use it as a precedent for future sure. future violators in the same realm, because you, you, now you have case studies. Oh, tons! Yeah, there are tons. And beforehand, you did not, or we did not, or it just wasn't as entrenched. I don't think it was as entrenched uh, as it is now. Um, I think I'm losing my train of thought. No, please, by all means, uh, take your time and think about it. I mean, this is a deep um, and heady subject. I don't really know why the rise of. I mean, I mean, look around, like the popularity of serial killer documentaries and all the true crime documentaries. Like people are really interested in this stuff, and I think that's really fueled. Some of the push, I know that's one of the reasons why a lot of my um, classmates were in in forensic psychology because they were just very interested in it. Pop culture pushes policy. Oh, that was that was pretty. <laughs> I did not mean it to be totally alliterative, but 
Well, I think, yeah, to a certain extent, but also pop culture very, very rarely focuses on rehabilitation. Like there are a lot of very, um, you know, sensationalist documentaries about like, look at these prison conditions, look how horrible it is. But I don't see a lot of pop culture things that pop culture media or whatever that uh, really focuses on the journey after you get out of prison. So like, you know, I've had people come to me in tears because they've been in prison for 20 years and they don't understand. They hand me an iPhone and they're really upset. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, what are you really upset about? And it's like, no, they're really upset because they don't know what this is. Whoa. Like I need to teach them how to use this iPhone. And that should not be your... That's not my job. No. But I will sit there with you for an hour and teach you how to use that iPhone so that you can feel connected to the world that you left for 20 years. And then you could incorporate that into your process sure. of healing and analysis. Absolutely. Yeah. And while we're learning the iPhone, we'll talk about, you know, something more important. But but also not taking away the fact that that's important. Right. You know, right. The nuts and bolts. I mean, I guess yeah. there's sort of the uh the analogy that uh, you know, a lot of high schools are now incorporating. It used to be home ec. Remember, uh, you used to have home ec classes. You are aging me. Uh, me I, well, I never had home ec. <laughs> uh, I had home ec classes because uh, I'm 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 an old man. But I would have um, I would have gladly taken home ec because I embroider and sew and bake. But they never they never so gave like, classes okay. on how to balance a checkbook no. or how to open a bank account or how to go get insurance. No. And when you when you reach eight. Be you going to college or going to uh, going to going out in the workforce? If you are eighteen, or and you, you don't know if you're getting scammed by an insurance company, and so we've got another transitionary period of these grown adults who never saw the iPhone, and no one's preparing them for that. So right. it's just like, bye, good yep. luck, have a good time, yeah. Bye. And a lot of, I mean, I can't really speak for, you know, the whole of the United States or anything like that, but I know that in, from my experience, the clients that I've had that have gotten out of prison say, oh, they gave me $90 in cash and a bus ticket to wherever I needed to go in the U.S. Or maybe even just the state, I can't really remember, sorry. Um, but that's what they had. And so a lot of the people that I worked with were, didn't, a lot, their family either wouldn't talk to them anymore or their family had died, or et cetera. Right. Um, we referred to like the lucky ones as people who had people that could pick them up from prison. That's mm-hmm. when you're lucky. Right. Um, but a lot of people don't. Um, and so I guess, I guess the whole, my point, now that I think of it, is I think the public likes to think, oh, great, this child molester has been locked away for 20 years. Perfect. And then they forget about it. But what they don't remember is that he will get out in 20 years. And the legal system says that we can't keep him in there forever. And so there's just isn't it. I don't see any recognition of what are we supposed to do with these people. And you work in the court mandated area of this. So you work with people who have been released. 
Yes. So the people I worked with were um, court-mandated, GPS-monitored, registered sex offenders. And um, before we started speaking and sort of prepping ourselves on what would be maybe a dark... By the way, Mackenzie is incredibly funny. You might We might not get into this from this conversation, but um, there is a wide spectrum of what is a sex offender. Yes. And you started touching on that, and I said, stop, let's get into it on the interview. Um, yeah. to, to the layperson, you, you, you've got these, you know, Dateline NBC, and there's like vigilanteism. People Catch are like, a there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a sex offender in our midst. And yeah. like everyone, like people will put like placards up on their lawn, like sex offender lives here and stuff like that. And, and I'll, I'll have to discuss that with them at therapy that week. And people take it into their own hands. But um, there is a wide gamut of what is thrown into the bucket of sex offender. So tell us what some of these brackets might be and how they differ from one another. So um, a lot of the different brackets are very... Um, so so you, you've got like things that the public will know about, so pedophile, rapist, uh, gang rapist, um, child pornographer, right? Those are basic. And these are all in the of, blanket category, yes, sex offender. Yes, sex offender. Um, but the thing is, uh, the psychology behind a gang rapist as opposed to a lone rapist can be completely different. Their motivations, their level of, quote, deviance, if you will, um, because it's, it's, it's a lot different than to, to be a, a lone person, say, oh, I'm going to go ra- rape somebody today, even if you have that much premeditation, as opposed to a gang member who is expected to behave in a certain way or else. Right. Whatever the else is. Right. Because we are in Los Angeles and you have operated with many gang members. Sure. Uh, Yeah. And when I was in London getting my PhD, I was also really involved in the gang prevention initiative. And my my whole PhD is about gang rape um, and the the group dynamics of gang rape. But it's actually um, a weird distinction because it's not the PC term. Um, multiple perpetrator rape is the PC term because mm-hmm. that encompasses it all. So there's a difference between you, not you, Austin. The, the <laughs> yes, the, there's a the collective you. Yes, there's a difference between going out with your male friends, you know, getting really drunk and ending up, you know, raping a girl. There's a complete difference between that and a premeditated, you know, retaliate, Retaliative? Retaliatory. Retaliatory. Thanks, Jeopardy. Um, Retaliatory rape of someone because she's the girlfriend of a prominent gang member and you want to teach him a lesson. I mean, these seem like definitely distinct things. They're a different, there's, they're a different thing. Right. Um, And so when you're faced with someone like that, so like, you know, yeah, if you're faced with someone who's in a, in a, more like a fraternity style. Well, that's why I was just going to say the multiple, but the 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 ultimate onus on both of these is it's you know fitting in with the group, right? Right. Yeah. So there's there are similarities, but there's also like a there's a systematic kind of structural difference. So like in a male group, just a, a bunch of dudes. 
um, you have a bit more freedom. Like the stakes are not life and death usually. Whereas in street gangs, a lot of times the stakes are very high. Maybe not even your life and death, maybe the, the life or, or death of your mother or your sister or whoever. This is to be expected or else. Yeah. 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 Your loyalty needs to be number one to the gang. Everyone else is moot. Oh, God. Um, so, you know, that's... that's. that's I mean, that's a pretty severe extenuating circumstance. Right. You know? It is. And, you know, the, I, and I can really speak more to uh, the gang politics in London because there aren't any guns in London. P, like, handguns are illegal. Right. So regarding L.A. gangs, I'm not as much of an authority. I kind of, I saw those individuals after it was all over. And, you know, and the other thing is a lot of these people, when they get out of prison, they don't want to tell you the whole story. They don't want to tell you. There's a lot of, and I don't want to say lying, but there's a lot of, Omission, right. we'll say. Um, and so so I can't really speak to the L.A. gangs and how they operate as much as I can the London gangs. But gang mentality is very similar the world over. Um, yeah. Right. So so um, not to paint, I, I, I want to say, do psychologists operate outside of morality? Is there like... like do you make moral judgments? Because for me, you've just drawn a clear picture of um, a, a spectrum of victimhood where I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm reading between the lines, but I'm hearing that if you were coerced by your gang, and this is to be expected because there were repercussions, that sort of multiple perpetrator sexual assault is somehow, just by the language that you couched it in, less terrible it's terrible but less terrible than the bunch of bros who take advantage of a drunk girl willingly no i don't think it's less terrible i think they're both equally as terrible um but i think they involve different psychological processes and different um a different way in which to suspend your morality Ah, so that's what's happening in the group dynamic. That's, I mean, that's my opinion. No, well, you would, um, you're, you are an expert, so your your opinion holds um, some weight. Yeah, I there's a different dynamic. I I can understand both of them. Um, both of them seem equally plausible, and I think this is kind of this the dangerous thing. So, like the ultimate point of my whole PhD which is annoying because it took five years and I could have just said this one sentence and called it a day, <laughs> um, is that I, I believe that anyone can be a party to a serious crime given the right circumstances, given the right people, and given the right mental state. Right. Which is not popular because people don't want to think that. They want to think, oh, I would never, I would never be involved in hurting that girl or, or, you know, I would never put myself in a position where I could be raped. That's why people are always like, oh, well, what was she wearing? Right. They're looking for a way of distinguishing their behavior from what the victim's behavior was because that means that they're going to be okay. When in reality, and there's tons of evidence for this, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. It really doesn't. Um, there's an art exhibit, I can't remember where it was, but it was it had all the the clothing that people were wearing when they were sexually assaulted. And it's the most boring stuff. Yep. You know, it's it's not... You I, know, I, I remember that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're not dressed like, 
you're going out, you're just, you know, khaki pants, whatever. I mean, well, group, group think is a real thing. It was and, super real. And, well, we've got, you know, entire societies falling on group think. We, you know, we've got the uh, mid, mid, uh, mid-century, mid you know, uh, mid-90s and 80s uh, Rwandan massacres, just neighbors turning on neighbors who'd lived together for, for millennia and just all of a sudden be like, you're the different, you're the other, and then they're it goes and you know literally two days earlier that guy was selling you wares and then mm-hmm. he's coming at you with a machete and I was I was in Rwanda last January and went to that museum and it's the only museum I've been to where I told my husband I was like I want to leave I'm upset right right not a whole lot upsets me but that really upset me and I think that might be because it was very close to some of the the things that I deal with but it was even more extreme. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, and or the good German. We did not know what was happening one town over. Yeah. Mm, pretty sure you knew what was happening one town over. Um, so so we've got these, so that's that's the group dynamic of of a multiple perpetrator sexual crime. Uh, but you also deal you've also deal and dealt with the other classifications of again this blanket sex offender. And um, I think there's some misconceptions that we might have on that too. So I worked I mean, I, I, I think like the rape, the rapist trope, a lot of the, the experience I've had has been very, um, you know, it wouldn't really be that surprising to people. I've had, pe- you know, I've had people who uh, date rape kind of scenarios. I've had like serial rapists, um, kind of the classic jump out of the bushes kind of person that runs you down, which incidentally does not happen that often. That's, 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 that's rare. That's very rare. If you're going to be sexually assaulted, it's most, most likely going to be someone, you know, I mean, that's the same with almost all forms. Of yeah. Violence. Or an acquaintance yeah. or whatever. Um, but again, it's also safer to think that there's strangers out there. No one that I would know or that I would associate with would do anything like that because that's, it's upsetting to look at our, our immediate circle with suspicion. Right. It's a lot easier to be like, oh, it's this this Ted Bundy figure that's that's out in the shadows or whatever. Um, but it really isn't. It's the person that you know. Um, but yeah, so I worked with um, a few, uh, well, not a few, more than a few, um, child sex offenders. Um, and then I also worked with um, some pedophiles. And there's, there's a, a distinction. So... It's interesting to me when people are accused of, say, having sex with like a 14-year-old, people meaning like someone who's like 35, right? Um, That person isn't a pedophile, but they're often labeled that um, simply because the person is under age. So a pedophile is someone who has an exclusive or significant interest in sexual interest in prepubescent children. That's what the DSM says that it is. Um, that interest needs to be pretty like prominent. Um, so a lot of child molesters that I saw, it was their first condi- conviction for being a child molester. And, you know, granted, they do say that for every one victim that's found out, there's three or four more or what have you. And I'm not disputing that. Um, but there is a difference between someone who, say, has always had adult relationships and then is convicted of molesting a child 
than the person who has never had an adult relationship and is always on the prowl for a child, and that is their primary interest. Those are two different people. Well, it's super debatable. Um, so you can read articles that say that there, I mean, it's pretty well established that there is a difference, but I don't think we're necessarily at the point where we can say precisely what that difference is. Um, people have explained or researchers have explained it, um, by talking about, uh, like, so child molesters, oftentimes they might, um, hurt a child simply because it's convenient. They have no other outlet for their sexual urges, um, They happen to be babysitting a child, you know, and situations arise that make that acceptable to them. And that is is a molester, not a pedophile. Yes. Yes. Whereas a pedophile, oftentimes pedophiles, if they have a great deal of insight, will be able to be upset that this is their interest. A lot of them are upset. And that doesn't excuse those people that go out and hurt people. Um, But more and more people are designating pedophilia as a real type of sexual interest Mm -hmm. that's unacceptable, frankly. But it's there. But it's there. Um, And I don't really know how I feel about that. Like, I I read a couple articles where some people were bold enough even to say that it's like, you know, we should decriminalize pedophilia, but continue to criminalize the act. So, So acting on it is different from feeling those feelings. That is, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. I mean, I understand it conceptually, but th- yeah, that, I don't, I don't know how I feel about it yeah. either. Um, but, but, and I don't, I don't know that it's important. I, I guess it's important for us to make that distinction. But for me, right this second, um, if I have a pedophile client, um, the important thing is to say, okay, you have this interest, but you can't do anything about it. Like you cannot act on that yeah. because it's illegal and yes. it hurts people. Yes, and you will go back to prison. Yes, and so we really it's it's more about working within the boundaries of what we can understand at this point, and which it, is hard because I mean you seem to be on the cutting edge of you know psychology right here because a lot well no a lot I don't of, know about that. I don't know because a lot of these things that you're talking about just like you know within our lifetime would just be lumped together into one whole thing and it seems like by cataloging by analyzing and by uh, you know harnessing more data we can refine it and enhance I mean, I think that they should be treated differently. I think that different sex offenses and different sex offenders should be treated differently. Currently, they're treated... Um, I mean, I don't want to hate on it because it this is the best that we've got, but like the treatment modalities that we currently use are very similar for everybody. And they can be tailored to a certain extent, but there's a lot of concerns, uh, rightly so, by uh, law enforcement, the judicial system, et cetera. Like, we need to cover all of our bases and make sure that, ev- that all these sex offenders cover all of the, the issues that we think are inherent in sex offending. Um, but a lot of people that I've seen, like, some of the stuff doesn't apply to them. Um, but I also am not going to be the one to say oh, this person doesn't need to talk about X, Y, and Z. No one wants to be that person 
that goes lenient on these people and then that person goes out and hurts a child or goes out and does whatever they're going to do. No one wants to be responsible for that. Um, and so it's, it's hard. And some of these distinctions, sometimes I am a bit like, okay, you made that distinction. So what are we supposed to do now? Right. What's your plan? Right. Because just by, just by changing a classification doesn't mean you've implemented any, you know, mechanisms to, uh, to, uh, diagnose and help this person in this distinction. I think it helps psychologists understand them better, the distinctions. Um, but I'm still sitting in a room full of nine people with very different crimes and very different attitudes towards their crimes. And sometimes they would fight over whose crime was worse and whose crime, who was the better person based on what kind of crime they committed. So there you are in this room and you are the psychologist in a room of, you know, again, blanket terms, sex offenders. How do you, because in a way, you, how do you, one, refrain from uh, lobbing judgment at, you know, which which crime is worse for fear of inciting those in the room, but still also knowing that there's these divisions within the the criminality of it, knowing that still you have to address everyone in the room equally, but you know that someone is worse. How do you, how do you, how do you walk that tightrope? Um, because we're all in the same room for the same amount of time. Um, we've all ended up here. And that's what I used to tell them. You're all sitting here. You all have the exact same GPS device on your ankle. You all went to prison. And this treatment is about the future. It's not about what you did in the past. And you should want me to have that attitude. because. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. All the people in your life, your neighbors, society, just focus on your past. And so why are you still focusing on it? Right. So now, now, now we've cleared that. We've cleared that. No, 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 seriously. Um, again, Mackenzie is very funny. It's hard to figure this out, but she's, <laughs> um, yeah. I'll try to do better. No, it's, it's a, it's a tough subject. You, well, there's a lot of, um, what do they call it? Coffin humor? Gallows humor. Gallows humor. <laughs> I recently said to someone the other day, I'm like, blah, 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 gallows humor. I, I made a, a, a morbid joke. I'm like, ah, it was gallows humor. Like, what's that mean? I'm like, oh, right before. Before you get hanged, you go, hey, been here before, you know? <laughs> right. 
there's there is a lot of gallows humor. Why did I say cough? I don't know. Whatever. That's fine. Um, there's a lot of gallows humor I found amongst people in the forensic kind of world because it's just a self-protective thing. You can't you can't cry about every single thing you hear because you just cry all day. Cops, soldiers, ER doctors, yep, EMTs, like, everyone's got it. But they're not joking about pedophiles. No, they're <laughs> no they're not. No they're not. And you know, but then it's interesting because some some uh they call it uh what are they hang on. Vicarious traumatization. Mm. So one of the the symptoms of vicarious traumatization is inappropriate humor about whatever the topic is. Right. And so it's interesting because sometimes you can see people making too many jokes, too much gallows humor. Yeah. And then you, it's kind of like, oh, okay. They're sort of, this is sort of their trigger. Yeah. Um, You know, and it, it really depends on the person or whatever. But you know, I've been there. Like I've I've had times when I was working in London for the charity, like a Scotland Yard charity. I found myself at one point making way too many inappropriate jokes because I was not okay. Um, and one of the police inspectors actually said to me, "He's like, are you okay? I think I think you might need to to like see somebody." <laughs> you look a little. This this is a yeah, hallmark was, of stress. And this was very early in you know my experience with this. Um, but I, I said to him, I was like, all right, if you think, if that's what you're seeing, I'm going to go do it. And Cause you can't see it from the inside. A lot of times yeah. you can't. Um, and you know, my husband will tell you, yeah, when you were doing that PhD about gang rape, it was, it was pretty rough there for a while. And I'm just like, what? It was, what are you talking about? Of course it's rough, but whatever. We're <laughs> but, fine. <laughs> but it was, it was rougher than it should have been. Apparently it was rough. Um, and you know, I see that now, but I just got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm just going to listen to what this man says. Cause clearly I don't know what's going on. And yeah, so, but it's very important in this type of, uh, environment or I don't want to say industry business, business, uh, field? Discipline. Field. Discipline. discipline field. It's a discipline. Discipline yes. field. Is, yes. It's a little bit of a business thing. Uh, oh, well, yeah, I don't want to, uh, that, that's, that's a topic for a different subject. Yeah. Yes. But my purpose was not a businessy purpose. Um, yeah. So in this field, it's really important to have colleagues that you can have gallows humor with or go out for cocktails and discuss how you don't want to talk about work or right. whatever. And so... Yeah, I don't know. Um, where where do we? How do we get here? <laughs> oh yes, the the room of every offender, and oh, you're yeah. like, and you're all here, so yeah. we got to work on that. Yep. And how do we work on that? How do we stop? Res- I'm, I am so bad at the word recidivism, but recidivism. I just I just said it. And and are people are people cured? Is there a cure for the system? Do people reform? Um, so the thing is, um, and I was just reading an article about this today, the studies on recidivism are very unpredictable and unreliable simply because of the methodology that they employ. So like the sample that you use, the region of the country that you use, how you're defining the crime, too many variables, et cetera. There's lots of variables. The thing about, uh, I think like one of the widely accepted things is that sex offenders, are well people that are have been incarcerated are more likely to recidivate as a whole everybody 
So like, I think I read somewhere 30 to 45% or something like that, something depressing. Um, but with sex offenders, they are very likely to recidivate at that rate, but not necessarily sexually. Explain. So a lot of these people um, that have been to prison, you know, I'm sure everyone's familiar with like institutionalization and like the type of people that go to prison, like socioeconomic issues, opportunities not being available to them, et cetera. All those people are like the sex offenders are within those people as well. And so when they reoffend, it is less likely than people think to be sexual. It will be some other kind of but criminal. Yeah, yeah or, you might get then get arrested for to knocking off a grocery store. I don't know. Right. Um, but it is not as prolific to offend sexually, again, as the public, I think, is often led to believe. Right. Um, that's been my experience. And does that necessarily, that does not necessarily correlate with like violent crime, does it? Is no. The person who's, I mean, again, we we are looking through the lens of the media, but the image of the person who I'm getting out, I'm making my new life, and then three weeks in, they're knocking off the liquor store again, uh, sounds like that is more prevalent. Yes. Um, and the best predictor of, of past, of future violence is past violence. Right. So if you are sitting across from a violent rapist, your major concern is obviously the sexual component of it, but it's also anger. The violence. And the violence. Yeah. Um, because rape and anger, that's what you got to have. Right. And so, so the majority, Usually. the majority of sex offenders are institutionalized, and when they come out, their fallback, their recidivism is towards a different kind of crime. Sometimes. Sometimes. Okay, so every, <laughs> you know, it's really hard talking to someone in this discipline field yes, this because, field. because it is not, it, everything is gray, you know? And that's the problem. And so, you know, I could sit here and hate on the judicial system or the prison system or, or whatever, or even the treatment system, but I, I do believe that we're doing the best that we can with what knowledge is available so, you know, there are a bunch of things like, you, so in California, you have to be, uh, if, if you're going to treat sex offenders, you have to be approved by the California Sex Offender Management Board, which kind of sets the criteria for treatment. Right. Um, and obviously the therapist can work within that and sort of tailor it to, to the offender, but there still needs to be a very specific, like, you know, types of topics that need to be discussed which are all based in research. They're all fine, like, great. The people who sit upon this committee are experts as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not a political committee. It's as a, far as I'm aware, no. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, in my experience, it's been, yeah, everyone's very in, invested in trying the best we can. But, you know, it always comes into, you know, it's not feasible to do a tailored treatment, a bespoke treatment plan for every single person that walks in. Um, just like the judicial system can't tailor absolutely everything to everyone who's accused of a crime. Um, so, you know, I think this is the best that we've got for now. Right. You do the best you can with the equipment that you're offered. Pretty much. So what 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 happens to the person who 
has gotten the court order, has the GPS bracelet, and is following all the rules, but is still going to these meetings. When do you see that growth? Sometimes you don't. Um, I don't like to think that, but um, it depends. It depends on what level of acceptance they have. Um, So you can have someone denying that they did anything wrong for the entire term of their parole. They could deny it for five years. And then they finish with parole and they don't have to see you again. You'll never see them again. Never. Nope. Just gone. Well, I mean, I hope you won't see them again. Right. (laughs) Um, But then you can have people who really try to use the service because you're essentially getting free therapy. Mm -hmm. You do have people that try to use the service. And I've had people who I do think benefited and it really helped them and they had some breakthroughs and it was very helpful. Um, But I really think it depends on the person. So you have some people who think that, oh, I'm just going to sit here for five years every Wednesday or whatever and I'll just do that and I won't participate or do anything. But the other thing is they have to demonstrate a certain level of engagement because we talk to their parole officers. Right. Um, and they ask, how is so-and-so doing? And then we say, oh, well, he hasn't really been talking. And so it's a really odd dynamic because these people, they don't have the same level of protection, like confidentiality-wise, as you would if you came to a therapist to just talk about your depressive existence. Right. Um, it's not that depressive. (laughs) (laughs) No, it seems nice. It's okay. Um, But yeah, so if, if you came to me as a a non-forensic client, it would be very much like, okay, if you're harming yourself or others, then I'll have to tell someone like, you know, basic stuff. But with, with a forensic population, it's, you have to go over it with them. There's a, a paper paperwork that you have to discuss, like, um, if you tell me that you are engaging in thoughts or actions or whatever that might precipitate another crime, I'm legally obligated to inform your PO um, or whoever, whoever you're required to report to. Um, And so there's never any real lockdown of that trust because they know that you could essentially rat them out if they say something. Um, and so it's it's a real problem when you're because you want someone to tell you, okay, you you harmed a child. Let's talk about why you did that. What was your thought process? And that's really upsetting stuff to admit to, but also to really ponder. No one wants to ponder about the worst thing they've ever done, right? And yet you're sitting across from me, and I'm asking you to ponder it every week for as long as you're on parole. Like, right. That's So yeah, tough. certain psyches could break down under that weight. Yeah. But others could repress it, and yet others could use it, like you said, as an opportunity for growth and improvement, you know? Yeah. You, you could... You, Other, others also could re-recount what they've done and get off. And enjoy it? Yeah. Oh, God. I didn't even think of that that's as, another thing I didn't well I didn't even think of that as, <laughs> well, as, that, as an option that's probably good 
Yeah. You didn't think of it. Okay, good. Yeah, because I thought, you know, if I was thinking about the worst thing that I've ever done, I'd either be like, you know, I'd cringe and then forget about it, or I'd repress it, or I'd be like, well, let me grow from that and never do that again. Because people, you know... It's a very real um, risk that you run when you, you want people to be open with you, but when they're being open with you about something that's very hurtful, illegal, upsetting, et cetera, and then really enjoying telling you about it, it's, you know, it's kind of contrary to everything you want as a therapist. You want clients to come in and like spill their guts and like be very open and stuff. And then sometimes with these populations, you're like, oh, oh, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. (laughs) No, no, this is not the purpose of this, this session for you to relive this fantasy, um, back it up. Well, yeah, no, it's, I mean, that happens all the time in, you know, the, um, the movies, the movies. Yeah. yeah. They go in to see the serial killer and he's like, you know, yeah. and he tells his, he recounts his crime with glee, you know, mm-hmm. um, like, uh, oh, have you seen mind hunter? Yeah, whoever did Edmund Kemper, whoever played Edmund Kemper was really good. Now, that is true stuff, right? Mindhunter? Uh, ish? You know, ish. Ish? <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe- I mean, he's a real serial killer. He's still in prison. Right. And the, 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 that FBI division- uh, is a true division, or what? That was the onset of the FBI yeah. forensic lab. What was it? I'm, I'm. I can't. I don't. I. This isn't my purview. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I know that I met one of them once. Okay, okay. Um, Robert, not Robert Wrestler. Some one of the other ones. I can't remember. Um, but that stuff. The, oh, it's the, it was the FBI profiler. Yeah, the psychological, that was the beginning. The psychological of that. profile. Yeah. It was the yeah. beginning of the psychological profile it's, as a discipline. It's so hard to get in there, though. I tried to apply to be like a special agent. Yeah. <laughs> and they asked me to go train at Quantico. Uh-huh. But then I saw all these requirements. They were like, you have to carry a gun at all times, and you have to be ready to go at a moment's notice. And I was like. No, that sounds horrible. (laughs) I don't care how badass it is. Like, I'm just not going to do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, you couldn't have uh, smoked pot within the past, you know, 16 months or, you know. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, we're not going to do that. No, I would, I would, there would be, I would fail a lot of those uh, baseline requirements. But I think, like, a part of me used to see shows like that and, like, you know, I was super into silence. I still love Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to be a badass and I'm going to go in and talk to these scary men and like, it's going to be amazing. And you know what? It's not amazing. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> it's I, a lie. It, it's, does it take a toll on you or are yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very, um, it, it, it kind of makes you more numb to other things. Uh, so when... Or I don't even, I don't even, I don't know how to describe it actually. Like it's, it's kind of insidious. Like it sort of creeps up on you. Do you me. just shoplift all the time now? No. You know what? I've never stolen anything. I don't think I have. purpose. I don't think I've, I definitely walked out of a store once with something on uh, by accident, but I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever shoplifted. I stole groceries once because it was the self checkout mm-hmm. and I was checking out and then I just bagged it and didn't pay because I was like thinking about something else. But then I walked back in. I think I walked out of a pharmacy once. And they didn't, with, they didn't make me pay either. And I bought like filet mignon and like red wine. <laughs> I, I think I was just, I think I was just grabbing stuff 
off the shelves and I didn't have a bag. So I was putting it in my pockets and I put half the stuff in my pockets and half in my hands just because nice. I had the pockets. And I think I just walked <laughs> out with the stuff in my pockets. And you get away with it because you're not even, you well, I got like, I got like, I got like a block away and I'm like, Right. Hey, free stuff. Wait, did I just free steal that? Stuff. No, no. I'm a, I'm a white guy, so it's free stuff. <laughs> I think I think it was oh, that's that's sad. I but, it's but, uh, yeah, yeah, but hi, welcome welcome to society. But anyway, um I think more what more what would happen is I am I would be completely unwilling to hear any kind of story about rape on the news completely if I remember I was in a movie I can't remember what it even was. And it's like some girl started getting raped and I was like, nope, I'm out. And I just walked out and I just texted whoever I was with. I was like, I'm going to go shopping. You guys see the movie. I'm out. Right. Um, So it was just more like I wanted nothing to do with anything that had to do with that world. But at the same time, there's probably like one night a week I would just be really numb and empty feeling. Um. And I would, I just wouldn't really engage with stuff, right? Um, and but it, and it was generally after someone had told me something very upsetting, not even necessarily about the crime they committed, but like about their life, or you know, I had someone tell me I was the first person that made him feel like a human, um, and that really upset me. It, it, I mean, obviously, I was like, oh, pat on them, good, good for me, but at the same time, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's like the saddest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But it's also interesting uh, in that you form relationships with these people. They're, they're professional relationships, but you can't listen to someone talk about their deepest, darkest secrets in their life for years on end without developing some kind of regard for them and care for them. Right. Which, you know, is the job. Like, you're supposed to care about who you're talking to. Um, and so then there's this weird dynamic where you'd be like, oh, oh, I'm, I, I think I'm, oh, I'm going to go see so-and-so. I hope that X, Y, and Z worked out. And then sometimes you forget like, oh, he's a serial rapist. Right. And- <laughs> because he's, he's talking about, you know, something mundane, yeah. like, you know, the dog walking job or something Absolutely. like that. Like I got a new puppy today. And yep. like, oh, I hope he brings it. <laughs> but then you, you're constantly reminding yourself, but wait, I'm not supposed to, you know, it's just very apparent that boundaries are much more important with that population because you can also have, you're more likely to have psychopathic people, antisocial personality people right. who will manipulate and, you know, twist things. And then so it's like you're always on your guard. So it's a very stressful Environment. Can you see that happening when someone is trying to utilize like that sort of manipulation? If you're good. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying I'm good. Right, right. Um, but most of the time when you, so when you get someone, you'll have a huge police report and you'll have an intake report that someone's done an interview with them and you can see patterns of things that you need to be more watchful of. Um so a significant amount of sexual partners, a significant amount of relationships that failed, lots and lots of jobs, 
um, violent history. Why are you? Don't you're looking all sideways? <laughs> well, because well, because you started ticking off some boxes that were a little close to home. Luckily, the violence didn't get in there. But a couple of those boxes, uh, and, I'm like, wait a second. Are, are, wait, yeah. Is this but, is this one of the interviews? <laughs> but in these reports, it'll also talk about style of communication, eye contact, um, tone of voice when speaking about upsetting things. Really? Yeah. So if you're very glib, who was the one who developed? These are police reports? Um, Prison reports? Well, it'll be a combination. So what happens is they'll do an intake report. And when you, like if you came in and you were depressed, your intake report would be like a sentence. You know, like, I don't know, male... (laughs) Right. No, no. Jeopardy person, you know, like whatever. Um, But because these are forensic clients, they have a lot more information that comes with them. So they might have court transcripts. So the evasion of eye contact, the stuff like that, braggadocio, stuff like that. Then you can start painting a picture of what this person. Yeah. But even then, sometimes you'll, you'll read a report and then you'll see the person and you'll be like, really? They had a different day, right? Maybe. But then maybe they're just. Like social desirability, maybe maybe this is like, oh, I'm in front of a therapist. I need to act a certain way. Um, so, oh god, there's so many variables. And you know, I I spent a lot of time googling things that they would tell me because a lot of times they weren't true or exaggerated or etc. So what I took to doing was actually I actually didn't read all of the intake report before I met them because I did want to give them the opportunity to manipulate me or, or tell me the truth or, or however they want. I wanted them to tell their story without me already having a preconceived notion. And then refer back and see and if then this refer checks back out. Does this see, check out? See if it checks out. And if it doesn't check out, then we have a chat about it. Because we know now I know the game you're playing. Right. Or, or now I know, actually even bigger, now I know you're playing a game. Yeah. Because if you saw first and then it checks out, you'd be like, oh, this one's not playing a game. Sure. But- and, and most of the time, you have to cut them a little slack because most people don't want others to think poorly of them. So if you tell me you did three armed robberies, when in your report it says you did six, okay, you know, like that's a little little much, but, <laughs> but, but at the same time, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I would just be like, okay, well... That's something that I, I don't really care about that necessarily because we're here for sex offender treatment. Right. There, there'd be certain sections of the report that I would be more interested in regarding my job with them. Um, so that was a thing. But yeah. yeah. Once court-mandated treatment has terminated and this individual or individuals do not relapse, do not fall back into criminality. Um, I I guess I sort of want to cap it off on maybe a hopeful note. Like, no, seriously, uh, how, how do we as the general public, because like you said, eventually once you're out into society again, you do become our neighbors and you do become, you do shop with us. How can we show compassion and how can we help integrate those who have paid their times and have completed um, what what one would hope would be a true rehabilitation? Like, how can we not? 
I'm not, obviously there's people will, who we will shun and who are generally bad people. Who are probably deserving or, of it. Or, yeah. or, or, or they are just, they just have such, uh, such a mental defect. I, is that a proper term? I mean, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> okay. I, well, I don't know proper terms. That's okay. But if they're so mentally deficient that, like, they, they there is not a hope for them. But what about those who, you know, they got through it? How can we as a society show compassion to these people who ultimately will become our neighbors and maybe our colleagues and maybe mm-hmm. shop in the same supermarkets as us? Um, I think there needs to be an acceptance of reality um, because that is the reality, like too bad. Maybe you have someone who is convicted of a sex offense living in your neighborhood, but that's too bad. Um, you don't get to pick that. That's why we have a justice system. That's why we it's not retributive. Um, that's not for you to determine. I think that's like a hard pill to swallow for some people, but I would also say, you know, if, if you find out you have a sex offender living in your neighborhood, that's had an offense against a child or something, there is a level of caution that's, that might be warranted, Mm -hmm. but you should already be exercising that caution anyway. Right. Like, because the one that you know is not the one that you don't know. Like, Right. I, well, yes, I, I would. Yeah, I what, think I think so, I'm getting it. I, I wasn't trying to be like poetic or like like it like flowery. Really good, it did right, um, uh, right. The it's easier it's easier to target the enemy that's been identified rather than yeah. the unknown boogeyman. Yes, and it's important also like the the stories that you hear on the news are not what's happening all the time. The stories that you hear on the news about someone, oh, he was a convicted sex offender and he went out and murdered someone, those are not the common story that happens. Right. I mean, my hope for the people that I've talked to is that they can just carry on with their lives. Because the thing is, if we let them out and then provide them an atmosphere that is shunning and terrible and they have no opportunity then they are likely to do something bad again. Again, right. not necessarily sexually, but but they are likely to to commit another crime because you can't have a life without hope. Um, yeah. Right. So you're not saying you know bake brownies for the welcome committee. Definitely but, not. But also don't you know burn an effigy on their front lawn. Yeah, and you also need to think about your own morality and your own value system. Like, do you want to be the type of person that launches a witch hunt against someone that you don't know? Do you want to be the type of person that's burning an effigy in someone else's lawn? Like, that's weird. You so, know? <laughs> yeah, we, we can show empathy while not simultaneously actively shunning. Yeah, and you can show Tolerance. Tolerance. Yeah. To- actually, but I, yeah. You don't even have to show acceptance. Yeah. You know, you could just show some tolerance and also some care because this isn't a game. This isn't, these aren't people that, that it's not leave it to beaver yeah. either. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to present this picture of like, oh, you should be so nice to the neighborhood sex offender. No. Like, but, but at the same time, you know, we don't know the extenuating circumstances, yada, yada, yada. But still, yeah. they, they committed a crime, they've done their time. And Technically, be, yeah. they should be able to be out yes. and, and live their life. But yes. also, like, I, I've But be seen, careful. But I've also seen law enforcement, parole, and probation, and like, a, they're really on it. 
with, they are. with monitoring. It's called the containment model. Um, and they're, they're really, they're not shirking in their duty. And then also like I'm part of the containment model or was part of the containment model. And so it's like a three person deal where we are monitoring what is happening. The parole officer, the, the psychologist the and psych- the on the street law enforcement. Um, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> the, like the parole or probation officer, um, the psychologist and like the judicial system. Got it. I the think ju- that's the three. The I'm judicial not- system as a whole. I just know that me and the parole officer talk. <laughs> that's what I know. But you know, I still, I get emails. I don't know who sends me these emails, but it's like the email title will be a sex offender just moved into your neighborhood. And I'm like, okay, sex offenders are my neighborhood. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's my whole thing. So that's nice. I don't care. Again, I'm also cautious because if I had a kid, maybe I would. You know what I mean? Right. So it's really, it's tough. There is, uh, there's, <laughs> yeah, what's the old, uh, it's the layers of the onion. You know, each time you peel it, you find another one. You're like, oh, there's, oh, there's another, oh, there's another, oh, there's another, oh, there's another. There's a Which lot of, really there's a lot of layers to this disturbing. onion. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's disheartening. For a lot of people, it's disheartening for a lot of people, but I think for a lot more people, it's a little bit more heartening, if that is a word, that people like you, McKinsey, are working so hard at this and that you have given us so much, f- not faith, faith is the bad word, but given so much trust in the legal system that people are on top of this, that there are systems and methodologies embedded in our criminal justice system, and that, you know, once once someone is out, they're not still out. There's still a system administering. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think that might be the best glass half empty <laughs> or glass Sorry. half glass. half. No, please. This has been absolutely stimulating. Uh, take from this what you will, but Mackenzie, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this was, this was a tough one, and I hope you have all listened all the way through it. Uh, and if not, I'm going to make you do so. Thank you, Mackenzie. Thank you for having me. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.